Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Football and Feelings podcast with me, Liam Masters, speaking to Carl Donnelly today, the comedian, uh, prolific podcaster as well. We spoke about both of those things uh, on today's show, as well as uh, a bit about veganism, uh, meditation and his general mental health, sort of how he gets through the, the day to day and uh, yeah, and how he's doing. Really great chat. Again, I'll post links in the description to uh, mental health charities uh, and to Carl's and our channel as well. So give them a follow. Thank you very much. Cheers. How are you? Uh, how are you getting on in lockdown though? All right, to be honest. Like, yeah. because me and my wife got a kid on the way next month. Oh, congratulations! No, oh, cheers. Yeah, but like, if that's sort of given us, it means we've got a lot to do. Mm. So, you know, we've been busy sorting out the place and getting everything we needed. And like, you know, it's actually been quite a nice distraction. Mm. You know, imagine if people just haven't got much on their plate, you know, and they suddenly they're just not working. Then you must, that's when people feel like lost and they and yeah, totally 100%. aimless. Whereas like actually the moment gigs stopped, suddenly me and uh, uh, Hannah were just here. We realized, oh, well, we've got a massive list of things to get on with. And it's just kept us busy, really. Yeah, I feel a bit bad for for sort of enjoying it. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Obviously, like like you said, other people are proper struggling. But like where where I live, anyway, I, I'm at my parents during lockdown, and it's just like a bit of a middle class old people haven near yeah. the seaside. So like the weather's been nice. If it wasn't for the weather, it would have been a, a bit annoying. But um, Definitely. yeah, I feel bad for annoying it for enjoying it. Uh, yeah, I think. So. I mean, I understand. I think a lot of people have that sense. So you know, I think. I think a lot of people are sort of are enjoying the, it in the sense that they've realised a lot of the things they were doing probably weren't that important to them. Yeah, you know I mean, like yeah. I didn't realise how you know I'm always out. I'm just always out and about. Yeah, during the day, I gig in the evenings. But even if I'm gigging in the evenings, I'm always out just meeting mates for coffee and stuff, which is nice. But you know, I just I've realised that it's not as necessary as I thought. Uh, could do it on Zoom, mate. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way forward. You're not going to see anyone for months, even after this finishes. Just be yeah, having yeah. little coffees on on Zoom. <laughs> have you uh Have you adopted a Bundesliga team for the time? I being? haven't like, actually. I'm still like um, I'm not particularly missing football as much as some, and I think that comes down to being a Spurs fan and the fact that we were on. <laughs> I just, I've just I've, this has been since they sat Pochettino. It's been my least enjoyable season probably mm. since the very early 2000s like you know it's just what is hot it's since like pre-martin yol i think this last sort of year has been my least favorite as a spurs fan so mm. yeah i mean another benefit of the coronavirus <laughs> is that it's it's it just put an a, a forced break into what was a really depressing period of time for Spurs fans. Yeah, you're getting your Amazon series as well this season. Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go anywhere near that. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine what it's going to be like. It's half a season of football and Poch getting sacked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> horrendous. <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, I still sort of, I think because of everything that's happened, I've, I've sort of forgotten about it a lot. But like when they sacked Pochettino, that, is, that was the single worst moment as a Spurs fan in my lifetime, like just, mm -hmm. I know some people wanted him to go and whatever. And, you know, there's moments that individually are worse, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, in that Champions League final, the, the penalty, I mean, like, there's moments that make you just go, ah, shit. But yeah. actually there's not that, I mean, in terms of moments that have made me sad, like that was the moment that was like something broke and like, mm -hmm. I'm just not really, it's, I'd say it's not fully repaired yet. Yeah, but same for my friends, actually. I've got quite a few friends who are Tottenham fans and exactly the same. When Poch got sacked, they were like, well, what is the point? If we if we can't sort of repay someone who's been that loyal to us and helped us so much without 
back in. Yeah. Um, why? What? I don't understand. It just didn't make sense. No, it was it was horrendous. I cancelled my. I'm not a season ticket holder, so I'm, I travel too much to be one. It'd just be utterly mm. pointless. But I, I'm a member, so I still go to the as, yeah matches when I can and stuff. And I I cancelled my membership like that night when I heard got the news that he was sacked. I just cancelled it. I was like, I'm done, mate. That's me for mm. a while. I need to take a break because that is not what I want. I just I, yeah, I don't want us to be in man city or you know i don't i like i like to, i like the fact we've you know we are a big club we've got a massive stadium now yeah. but we've i don't know we've i do feel like we've done it in a in a better way than a lot of clubs you know we've, yeah. it has built it been a gradual build in the last 20 years you know what i mean since that sort of when we were just shit man in the like late 90s <laughs> oh man it was <laughs> crap you know what i mean so we the, the 90s were a rough decade and like i think that sort of gradual thing when we suddenly had a couple of seasons like when in the mid 2000s where we like finished fifth and we and that's mm. for the, after the decade before it that was so nice to have just a bit of consistency <laughs> and that just built from there and from there and it felt like you know i never thought we'd get to a champions league final don't get me wrong but the fact that even in the last sort of seven or eight years we started to sniff around Obviously, we started sniffing around the top four, and then we got into the top four, and then we started sniffing around like we could theoretically have a little yeah. title push if we really went on a good run, and like that. Just feelings like that, I never thought I'd have. And uh, I suppose that is the problem. There comes a point where you're like, I understand the business side of it; they want to naturally progress. But the moment they just thought, the moment they got rid of Pochettino, and went for Mourinho, you can see so black and white what they want behind yeah. closed doors. But for me, I was like, oh, that's, that feels like a, that does, that just feels a bit grotty. Yeah. I'm an, I'm an Arsenal fan. And I think my, my proudest period as an Arsenal fan was probably when we weren't really spending any money, but we were consistently getting Champions League. It's, there's yeah. something, there's something about it knowing that like the people behind the scenes have kept like some sort of value there rather than just getting another investor and just buying a yeah, yeah, 70 yeah. million pound player. And I think a lot of that, you know, I think a lot of what I always, you know, obviously Arsenal and Spurs have a innate mm. dislike, that's rivalry. But, you know, I, I would, I would ch- challenge you to find a Spurs fan who secretly in their heart wasn't massively jealous of what you had with Wenger. Like mm. just that stability and consistency and the fact that you just had a manager who seemed to care and love the club and have a nurturing attitude towards the players and the young players and all that. It was, you know, it had a, such a, that was, that was, it's the Alex Ferguson thing as well, isn't it? Like yeah. you want that for a club. You don't want just some mercenary coming in every couple of years. And I think that's what with Pochettino, it felt like we'd finally found ours, you know? Yeah. And, that's what it seemed like. It was like, you were just getting, just getting attached to him, like fully, like he was part of the club's history. Oh, and definitely. Yeah, unreal. And then, yeah. So I think that's why for me, I feel like I'm on a sort of, hiatus i say that mm. i mean like i bought i ordered a uh two baby uh spurs suits for my <laughs> soon to be arriving child so i mean i'm not totally giving up on it but yeah I, of course, uh, yeah i just i don't i can't foresee me having the love of it for at least another season or it might even be till Mourinho ends up obviously inevitably going in about a year or two mm. you know it might be it might take till then for me to fully be back in love with them but yeah i've definitely enjoyed not having a having my weekends just ruined by by shit yeah, result. Yeah. <laughs> that's true actually i think there is something about that that i've not even thought about in terms of mm. like it really affects like and again weirdly i've sort of had that that one slight relief since pochettino went and Mourinho came in is i've not had that feeling i've not had that feeling of going to a gig on saturday night miserable because spurs lost mm or gave away a last minute goal, whatever. And, you know, I suppose there is something to be said for slightly losing your investment in football. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Have you been doing many online gigs? I can't imagine how different that is because you're not able to sort of read the audience and sort of connect with people. Yeah, I mean, I've I've actually done a a fair few now. I was was really cynical at the start and I put them off for a while. But um, I finally sort of agreed to one about a month ago. And actually, it was really fun. Like, what they do is they sort of basically, they, you know, they get the audience and they mute everyone apart from like 10, which they essentially create like a front row. Right. And then they put 
the comedian on spotlight, so that means the camera's not jumping around to whoever's speaking. So everyone's just watching you, but they can hear the laughter of them people that are unmuted, and so can you when you're performing. So it ends up giving that slight, you know, responsive thing of it. So yeah, mm-hmm. I found them actually once once they they worked out how to do them, they've become pretty decent now, and they they run pretty smoothly. How is how is that changing your set then? Because like in terms of you can't really rely on like you said that other people are muted. Is yeah, it more yeah, like yeah. more story based or like? Yeah, definitely. That's what I found. Me and I, I know a lot of comics have said the same thing. They tend to go to stories more than quick bits because mm. it's also you are still ultimately, you know, as stand up always is. You're having a one way conversation, but you're making it look like it's a conversation. Yeah. But I think, yeah, it definitely feels more, when you're sitting at your desk doing it, it definitely feels more like there's not much performance in it. So I find myself definitely telling slightly longer stories and, yeah, being a bit more slow and, yeah, just chatty with it. Mm. How did you get into comedy? Because that's a sort of an unconventional route, I guess you could say. Like, did you always know that was something you wanted to do? Or did you just not fall into all. it? No, I fell into it. I had no, I, I didn't do any performance or anything at school. I was pretty shit at school and just like bummed around and did enough mm. sort of to get a few GCSEs and here and there. And yeah, I didn't really have any direction. I always loved comedy though. I loved sort of sketch and stand up stuff. I'd always watch. Yeah, I loved it on telly and yeah, I like people like Dave Allen and Billy Connolly and people growing mm. up. But I had no real, I didn't really know anything about it. And it wasn't until probably very early 20s when I went to a comedy club for the first time, just like pure by chance. I think my ex-wife, uh, she took me there when we were just starting to go out with each other. And then she she loved stand-up and she'd been to watch like things at the Edinburgh Fringe, which I'd never even heard mm. of. And then, yeah, we, she just took me to a comedy club and I just, I loved it. Like, I couldn't believe, you know, what I was seeing. It was so much fun. and everyone was sort of there for the same reason and the comedians were just funny and the comedians also looked like they were having like a lot of fun. Yeah. So I've never really seen that live, you know, because normally when you watch it on telly, it's a big shiny stage and the audience are quite far away and it, it looks, it's funny, but it looks quite theatre-y, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, detached. Whereas a, yeah, whereas a comedy club, you know, I grew up, I lived in a pub for a bit. My parents ran a pub for a bit when I was young, so I love the feel of pubs and that sort of mm. smelly, grotty feel. Uh, and I think comedy clubs have that. There's a sort of dirtiness to them. You feel like you're in a sort of basement chatting about stuff that you, you couldn't say outside. Yeah. And I just fell in love with it. And yeah, within about a year, I started contemplating giving it a go. Even though I was shit scared, man, because I've never done any performing at all. I didn't even like reading out loud in school sort of thing. Mm. And then just, yeah, but, uh, my my... Uh, girlfriend then at the time she signed me up to a comedy workshop because she knew I was a bit interested but didn't know where to start and I just went and popped along that for a few weeks and that just sort of gave me the kick up the ass to try it and when I did I just fell in love with it instantly yeah because it's such a it's such a different thing like someone being funny and then being professionally funny like it, it feels like there's a, a big gap there it's a bit like in football, like people say, can they do it on a rainy night <laughs> yeah. in Stoke? You know, can yeah, they yeah. do it on a Thursday night at Birmingham Glee Club? But how how do you get to to that? I, I presume you were, were you a funny person before, or did like yeah? I'm I trying to get my head around that. I think like you know, it's different. It's I, I it's a hard one to like, this explain because I think you know. I think we all, you know, know funny people, you know, in my circle of friends that I grew up with and I'm still friends with, you know, I, we were all, we were all pretty funny. We were all quite a laugh and we all make each other laugh all the time. But I wouldn't say I was, I I wasn't, I was never the one who'd hold court or, you know, Mm. I don't think I was the funniest or the, you know, but I'd say... Is it the diff, the difference between somebody who's just funny with their mates and in conversation to somebody who's got a mind that can take something and turn it into a bit of stand up? And you know, you've got to have an element of being funny, uh, but you also just need to be able to see, like, why would that be funny to four hundred strangers on a Saturday night? So you've got to have that slight creative writing element of it, I suppose. Of being able to take something that is just a funny idea and making it into a routine that gets across to enough people that they can see it when you're telling it. 
so it's just uh, that's the difference that's why you know when people like see a comedian they don't like they'll see that and think oh that's shit and my mate's funnier than that and it's like well of course your mate's funnier than that to you because he's your mate mm-hmm. and he's got they, you've got a similar sense of humor you've just seen somebody who didn't have a the, the sort of humor you like but you know, it's actually, if you put that their mate on stage up against that other person, the other yeah, person would clearly die on more. stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because not all the time, some people do just have a natural affinity to it. But the overwhelming majority of people who are funny with their mates won't make stand-up comedians. Mm. Can you practice at home? Or is that is it too hard really to replicate? Does it have to be through persistent gigging? I think you can if you've got a certain style of stand-up, which is, you know, if your stand-up is very written and very scripted and, you know, I think then you can just practice the sort of rhythm of it and mm. earn in what you want to say. If you're somebody who's a bit more freewheeling and sort of plays off the audience and you just can't, like I've never, ever been able to just because I think I, if I, pra- I think I'd, it would be detrimental to me if I practiced at home because my whole thing and what i love about it is that thing that every gig is different every gig is a live experience with a group of people that you'll never meet again now you might meet individuals they might come to different shows but you'll never meet that exact group of people again in your entire life so naturally i think i like to treat every gig as this is a one-off event yeah that's a nice way to look at it do you still feel pressure when you perform or is that do you get used to that and the nerves go or yeah you do but there's different pressure for different gigs and different mm. things as well like i always find um you know like if i'm doing edinburgh or tour show or something where it's just me that's when i feel at my most pressure i think you know because you, you the whole night stands and falls on you and that audience and what they think of you so you know if you have a if you have a bit of a ropey tour show that will hit you more than any other bad gig because that's all you, <laughs> you basically, mm. you know, but if you're doing a, say that, like say the Birmingham Glee, you know, on a Saturday or Friday night, there's going to, that's a big room. There's 400 people, whatever in that room. It's a brilliant comedy club. So like everything's in your favor. It's built perfectly. They're all looking mm. at you. It's like everyone's like on good behavior and up for a good night. You know, the pressures there are different and based. I often find that the pressure of when you're on the bill, it's the biggest thing on those sorts of gigs where, you know, if I'm cl- closing it, for like, I mean, because it's not really, it's, people think if you're on last, you're a headliner, but actually in the UK, we don't particularly have that in the major comedy clubs. Comedy clubs have, everyone's just doing the same length of time and you're all pretty much as good as each other. But, so, you know, slightly smaller clubs have a headliner where you do a bit longer and that. But yeah, if you're closing like the Glee or the comedy store or something, mm. the pressure there is, well, they've watched three brilliant comedians already. The pressure is I can't be the shittest one. I can't be the one to let the let the, the sort of consistency slip. Whereas if you're on first, the pressure is they're not going to be at their peak of warming up. You know, you get the audience probably at their slightly coldest of the night. Mm. Um, if you're in the middle, it's the easiest spot. So part of you, the pressure is, well, I, I have to really be shit to mess this up <laughs> like every spot has a different right weirdly the, the, the spot i always find the least pressured and some people would have the opposite but it's hosting i find hosting really fun and mm. i find i find when i'm hosting I, I almost treat it like i'm i've got a night off and i'm just having a chat and a laugh and i don't feel as much pressure as when i do a set which is probably yes that's, that's why so I, I do quite a lot of that and i used to do a lot of it but I think that's because of that. I find it very freeing and fun. So yeah, the pressure's yeah. always different based on when you're on and things like that. I've definitely noticed that. I've been to a few Just The Tonic events and there's been a few times where the compare has been not only the funniest person there, but like so obviously the most relaxed act. Like they yeah. just come on, throw a few jokes around, fuck around with the audience and then just introduce the next person. You can tell they're not feeling the pressure to be better than the last person that was on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the pressure as well is like a lot of you basically a lot of people when they're newer, a lot of or comedians who haven't done much comparing, they find it really scary and they think they're lot, the, the pressure is all on you because you're the one holding the show together and you've got mm. to set it up and do the admin and like there's a lot of pressure. But actually you talk to anyone who's done a lot of comparing and actually does it regularly and basically they'll tell you that the secret that you learn really early doors when you start 
hosting shows is the reason that it you can actually relax the most and take the pressure off is because most weekend comedy clubs, you know, a, a good, I'd say over half of the audience, if they're not regular comedy goers, won't think you're a proper stand-up comedian if you're hosting. They're in, they, they, they think you're just, oh, he's the guy who's hosting because he's not yeah. a proper stand-up. He owns the club. Yeah, they, they'll, think <laughs> some, they'll have some idea about what you're there for. Mm. And that's why you always get you always get the most compliments when you're hosting from those people because they'll come up to you afterwards and go, "Oh, you you were the funniest. I don't know why you don't do stand up." <laughs> you're like, <laughs> and, and I find it really funny. So that's happened. Anyone who does a lot of comparing has had that comment like a thousand times. And it's so once you get that enough, you realise, oh, this is why it's not. I can take the pressure off when I'm hosting because a lot of them don't think I'm a stand up. Everything I'm doing mm. to them when I'm making them laugh, they are like, "Holy shit, this." This, um, <laughs> this this announcer's well funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bruce Buffer's just smashing it up here. <laughs> so it's wicked. It's almost like you can't lose unless you are. Obviously, there are. You know, if somebody's not very good at it, then you can be bad at it. But if you're somebody who's naturally relatively funny and confident and know what you're doing, mm. you can have a, You can really, you can really have a lot of fun comparing. You can get away with murder. Yeah. It is, it's human nature though for people to be drawn to or be more sensitive to like negativity as opposed to positive things. But when you personally, when you look back on your career now that you've had so far, do you, when you think about the gigs you've had, do you remember the best gigs you've had? Are they the first thing you remember or is, are you more drawn to the times that you struggled a bit on stage or? Yeah, you definitely remember the bad ones. Like, and again, not in an arrogant way, but once you get to a certain level where you're decent at comedy and you, your consistency goes right up, you know, once mm. you've done it. And if also, if you're just, it's really hard to make it as a professional stand-up. So you've got to have, you know, A, you've got to be funny enough that the bookers are booking you again. You've got to have a good enough gig that bookers book you again. You know, you've got to constantly stay on your toes and be good enough and improve. But, you know, your, your bad gigs get really far between. And your good gigs, you tend to just be, you know, your gigs, all your gigs essentially should be good to be making a living from it. So naturally, you you only really remember the bad ones because they're the outliers that sneak up and and they catch you off guard harder and harder. The, the better the better you are and the more consistent you are, then the bad gigs they really catch you off guard because <laughs> you can't prepare for it. You might be on a run of. 50 gigs that have been you know really good or solid it might be a couple that are a little bit you know sunday nighty where everyone's got you know not mm. much energy or whatever but you know you've not had a gig where you think people have walked away going fucking hell what's he doing so how when do you one... come back from that then when you do struggle on stage and have a really bad gig how do you just have to get out there and, and do another one as quickly as possible yeah yeah yeah. You t- i mean luckily again when you're doing it full time you you always will have plenty of you know, your gigs, your diary books up a year in advance. So, you know, you'll have you'll have a gig within a few days, mm. but you go into that next gig with you know that's when you feel a bit of pressure as well because you're like, if I die twice in a row, this could be the yeah. start of like the end. You know what I mean? This could be <laughs> I've lost it, mate. Yeah, am I a bad comedian? Because <laughs> <laughs> you see, I've seen comedians since I started out. I, I did my first gig like fifteen years ago, whatever. Slightly over that now, yeah. But I've been, yeah, I've been doing it for basically fifteen years, and um, I've seen comedians in that time. That when I started, I saw them, and they were proper big hitting club comedians. Where you know you would not want to be on after them because they were just going to wallop it. And in that fifteen years, I've seen some of those people go from that to now. I would, you know, if I looked, at, if I was on a lineup with them, they'd be the person I'd pick to go afterwards because I know. I know that I'm going to have a better gig than them because they've just lost a bit mm. of their spark. And, you know, I think you can fall out of love with it a bit and not even realise and start phoning it in a bit and stop writing new material. And naturally, I think, you know, a lot of people invest a lot in it and think that I need to be on, you know, live at the Apollo or I need to be hosting some television show week in, week out. And if they don't get that, I think they sort of start resenting stand-up a bit and, start seeing it just as oh, a job now isn't it i'll just show up and do yeah. do enough to get by and get rebooked and then that's it and i think you know so i've seen it happen to some really really funny people that just aren't really their head's not in the game anymore so there is that yeah. as a risk i mean it's, it's a bit like a, a football team i suppose eventually 
that it's no longer a bad streak. You're just like a a, a bad team. I know that probably sounds yeah, harsh yeah, to yeah. say, but um, I oh. know what I mean. Me and my friends, um, I've got some of my old schoolmates. There's, there's, six, there's five of us. I've got a FIFA Pro Clubs team that we pay on pay on okay. Xbox. So you know, for anyone who it doesn't know what Pro Clubs is, basically on Xbox Online, you can create a team and each basically you pick just one player. So you're controlling one person in one position. And me and my mates got FIFA like seven or eight years ago and started playing online together. And you know, we we used to be I don't know what we were just well good. We just had this vein of form. That we ended up getting one season, we got up into Division One, which out of like the hundreds of thousands of teams on Xbox Live, we were in like the top something mad, like top thousand. Wow! And uh, and we were just solid. We just knew what we were doing. And then, just as years have gone by, it might be that we've all got a bit older, and genuinely, our heads aren't in the game, and we don't play it as regular. We play it like once every couple of weeks. But mm. we just last the last maybe year, whenever we play it, we just aren't very good. And it took a long time for us to realise it was because we just weren't very good anymore. Like there was arguments, there was days when it was like, no, this this team we're playing is shit. We're just we're not having the luck. And it's just recently we're now like we, you know, we're in like Division Five at the minute, which is crap. And we're yeah. just like we've just accepted it. We've like a few players have stopped playing because they just couldn't hack it. <laughs> <laughs> and it is that moment we all basically have to have a word of ourselves and go, look, we are not. We're a Division Four team. Who are, you know, that's it. <laughs> Division three, we might get up to now and again, but then we'll get relegated the first season we're up there. You just got to accept it. Your that's your ability. Sounds like you need a new motivational Harry Redknapp type manager to come in, <laughs> come well, in and weirdly, save it. Recently, comedian Chris Martin, who lives in LA, and I used to do a podcast with him. He's like one of my best mates. He's recently bought an Xbox in LA and got a FIFA, so he's just transferred to the team. Mm. <laughs> so we're, we're hoping he's going to inject a bit of vitality into the, into the dressing room. You heard it here first. Mega new signing, Chris Martin <laughs> signs. <laughs> with God's Children. That's the name of our club. It was called we we called it God's Children in the first season we ever we ever set up for some reason. And in the next season we called it that again, but for some reason we forgot the D, so it was God's Children. And it's just stuck. That's our name. Stress. Uh, I do love playing pro clubs, but there is always a, there's always a player or two that are, that are clearly the reason you lose most games, and it's, oh it's quite hard to to bring that up. It's it, it, it's the only time me and my mates genuinely get a bit shitty with each other. You know, <laughs> a lot of us have known each other since we were like five or six years old, and there's times when you know we're all having a laugh and we're having a, you know, and there's times mm. when there's not a single word being spoken because all of us are thinking. Like, if I say this, it will upset that person because, you know, I've got, yeah, one of my mates is just, because you can call for passes. And he's, yeah. he's one of these people that will call for a pass just when one of our defenders is trying to play it out as, you know, near, you know, on the edge of our box and he's on the halfway line. He's calling for a pass. It's like, mate, our players are not good enough to make that pass. <laughs> They're going <laughs> to give it away. They're going to score. And then we're going to have a fucking argument. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's some really, um, Passive aggressive, mm. you know. My mate Paul's the worst for it because he's he's naturally the best at it. Like he can actually do skills and stuff. Yeah. But but also he's greedy and he he'll, he'll do rather than make a simple pass to somebody in a decent position, he'll end up doing eight Cruyff turns on the edge of the mm-hmm. box. And um, he's got this amazing ability of being passive aggressive, where if somebody has a particularly bad game. Uh, they won't say to him you were shit. What he'll do at the end of the match, he'll go, uh, um, do you wanna do you wanna maybe drop back into midfield or something? <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I know what you're saying, mate. <laughs> uh, there is always one player doing loads of skills. Uh, on my club, that's James McGowan, if you're listening. Um atrocity of uh, <laughs> too many cry turns, mate. Just too many cry turns. <laughs> but um uh, going back to to the world of comedy. Uh, I'm not sure if this sounds naive. I don't know too much about the the world of a, a comedian and the relationships comedians have with each other, either on the circuit or on TV appearances. But um, sort of a mental health tip: Has comedy ever been the cause of a wobble in your mental health, or or the victim maybe of a uh, of like yeah of mental yeah health I think problem. both during different periods of time. Like I think. Mm. You know, during probably the worst periods I've been through, comedy has been, a, you know, a, has been the cause and some of the 
and also some of the saviors of it as well, you know, in the sense mm. of, you know, if you're going for a tricky time, suddenly spending a lot of time on your own on the road can be horrendous. You know, so if you're, if you're in a depressed period of your life and suddenly you find yourself in a in hotel in Grimsby, a beer, some shitty B and B, you know, with like a single bed that's all that hard sheets, mm. and, you know, there's a little telly in the corner. It's not working. You know, everything can just feel a bit on top of you and a bit oppressive, you know, and also that loneliness on the road. Sometimes if you're in a really happy place, that solo time on the road can be really beneficial and you can use it for a lot of good stuff and thinking and reading and, you know, you can feel very productive with it and thank, you can be thankful that, oh shit, I've got loads of time where I can do stuff that most people don't get the luxury to do. Mm. But yeah, so it's that sort of extremes, I think. It can either be the worst thing about being a comedian or the best thing about being a comedian. Do comedians, other comedians sort of understand that about each other or is it sort of not really, not spoken about? <laughs> It's not particularly. I mean, I think, you know, I remember sort of in probably, there was a good few years where I reckon, you know, I think mates would have known what I was going through, but I I didn't find myself regularly sitting in dressing rooms talking about it to comedians who might not have been Mm. as, I might not have been that close to or anything, you know. So I think you tend to just suck it up a bit and, you know, I think only only your, your yeah only your mates in comedy will really know that. Oh right, he's having a bit of a tough time of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, it's um. But everyone, I mean, everyone's cool. You know, it's it is a nice industry on the whole. There's not. I think I probably would have assumed it was much worse than it is before I did comedy. You know, in terms of egos and people yeah. like d- digging each other out on that. And on the whole, it's good. Yeah, it can be quite cliquey you know everyone just if it's almost like school years you sort of you're in your year and you've got your mates and there'll be a few people from other years you might know but yeah on the whole it's sort of you get, you get your gang and then that's your you're really tight with them but you sort of actually get on with everyone and there's only ever really a few dickheads knocking around it's not it's nowhere near as uh egotistical as people would think yeah moving on to the podcast world you're quite which you're quite prolific in Stretching back like uh, over 10 years ago, wasn't it? The comedy podcast with your podcast yeah. wife, Chris Martin. Yeah. I remember we, we we were one of the first ones to start out doing podcasts. Like just, you know, in the UK, that is like just mm. a couple of comedians having a chat. But I mean, we were doing it before there was even like, before you, there was the affordable home technology to do it. Like we used to just sit either side of a laptop and just talk into it. <laughs> That was the early days. It was horrible. And then, and then know, obviously that... you've you've got two vegan idiots with Julie and your podcast mistress, maybe. Yeah. Babysitting Trevor, uh, a comedian yeah. called Carl drinking coffee, which is quite nice. That's nice morning company. Yeah. But do do these podcasts serve? Do they serve a purpose to you as well as the listeners? Like, is it just as much for you? I think some. Yeah. So they definitely. Yeah, I think they do. Actually, they give you a different outlet. I think like me and julian's one that is like the one with me and chris started it because we used to write a lot together we'd sit down over a coffee every week and we'd just throw around some ideas that we were working on and some of it would never go to ever anywhere near the stage you know what i mean some of it some of it though would be like oh that's got some legs let's give that a try and we just talk it through and we just because we were mates we'd always just make each other laugh a lot and then you know i think we'd heard I can't remember what American podcast it was. It was like the, one of the first comedy American podcasts. And we were like, oh, why don't we, why don't we do one of this? Why don't we weekly when we sit around just coming up with ideas, why don't we actually just record it and have a laugh and just put it out as like a 25-minute thing? And, um, and it, so that beca- it became almost like a little writing session. We'd always come off the back of it going, oh, that thing you said was really funny. You should write that in your book. Mm. And that sort of carried on for a while. And then with Julian... It sort of carried on with that, but what's happened now, I think it's a different dynamic with Julian than it was with Chris, in that Julian makes me laugh more than any other human being on earth. Like he's mm. yeah, he's so um he's so consciously funny, but also unconsciously funny at the same time, which is weird. Like he's he's got the best comic timing of any any comedian I know on earth. I mean, I've had traveled the world, you know, he's he's almost but almost to a pathological degree. Like he's mm. one of these people that he, he, he cannot stop himself saying 
the funniest <laughs> thing. Like, even if it's the worst timed thing, you could be telling him that your gran had just died. And if he has a funny thing in his head to say about it, he will say it regardless <laughs> of the timing of like how it might make you feel. He has to say the joke. And it makes him so funny, <laughs> but it's almost impossible to get through a conversation with him. Yeah. So I find the the sort of benefits I get out of doing the podcast with Julian is I genuinely spend a lot of it just laughing. And then <laughs> I I sort of do the edit. So I end up, I miss half of him because he's so like, he'll just hit, he'll say something every five seconds when you're telling a story <laughs> and, and you'll hear every other one and laugh. But then when I have to edit it, and sometimes I have to skip through to see if there's anything that might have been dodgy, um, I'll, st- I'll be laughing at the ones I missed. So mm. like, I, ben- I genuinely get the benefit of just, he cracks me up on, you know, it gives me a real laugh every time we do it. And the babysitting Trevor one, again, that, that was just a concept. That was quite just creatively fun to do. Because, you know, again, that comes from just having a very eccentric friend and Mm. him not really knowing what to do or having an outlet so what me and chris did was give trevor a sort of vehicle where we could just showcase him in his eccentric glory yeah and the the other little the the little coffee one i sort of don't really think of because that's that's a little just experiment i started doing at the start of this year where it's like you know it's only 10 12 minutes long and it's three times a week, and it's me genuinely just having my morning coffee and talking out loud. Mm. So that I did that because at the start of the year, I thought I'd love to see what it's like to just do one on your own because it sounds mental, doesn't it, to do a, like a one-way conversation mm. without any response at all. It's like doing it'd be like doing stand-up without an audience. Yeah, so I just yeah. I just wanted to do it to see what it was like, and if I could just maybe learn how to do that so the benefit i'm getting from that is learning what it's like to just talk aimlessly like stream of consciousness mm-hmm. with without planning it i don't sit there and think this is what i'm going to talk about i just drink i sip my coffee and then start talking and press stop 12 minutes later so it's become like a yeah it's become like a little practice session where i just you know learn a new skill it seems quite therapeutic though because like even from listening you can tell that you're just getting your thoughts of the day out in front of you. Yeah. And then you can, sometimes you sort of make sense of, of those thoughts. Like for me, I, I write down, I write quite a lot, just even on my laptop or writing down how I'm feeling, just because yeah, yeah, yeah. when it's all in your head, some of these thoughts get stuck together and you, you're sort of giving them too much attention than they, they deserve. Yeah, well, I think there is that as well. Like that's what the, the sort of forcing myself into doing it three times a week, like quite early doors, it became Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Mm. And what I've found is having that, like I've, I've basically almost made an agreement with myself, you're going to do it on those days, unless there's something genuinely in the way. And um, I found on the days when I've not really felt it, like it's only been a couple of times during this lockdown where I've woken up on a day and genuinely been like, oh man, this is, fuck this. You know what I mean? Like, you know, sort of genuinely, this is now doing my head in. Mm. I've been pretty good at it and I've dealt, I've dealt with it very well, but I've had a couple of days where I've woken up like that and like, you know, one of them fell on, on Monday and I did the podcast actually, but actually saying it out loud and talking through going, Oh, I just felt a bit, feel a bit shit and a bit lot. You know, it was, even though I wasn't talking to anyone directly, it was, it's just saying it out loud in the morning was like, all right, well, I I know that's happened now. It's that's out in the world. It just does get, I suppose it was an outlet that I might not have had otherwise. Yeah. You've talked about meditation as well on a, on a few of the podcasts. I'd like to, quite like to hear what it does for you. Cause I, I meditate a few times a week, not too often. Sometimes I've really struggled to get into it. It just doesn't happen for whatever reason. Other times I come out feeling like a fucking God, like, yeah, yeah. Feel like feeling like I'm seeing the world for the first time. It's, it's fucking, <laughs> it's insane. Like colors feel different. It's mental. But yeah. What, what does it, what does it do for you? It's, very, it's that exact thing. I think there's times when it, I, I get so much out of it and there's times where it feels like a bit of a frustrating experience. But I think the longer you do it and the more regularly you do it and the different types mm. you might try, what they teach you is that it's, you're, you'll never ever get to a point where it's the same every time. And like it's, you know, you can have somebody who's done it for 30 years and is fucking living up in a monastery in you yeah. know, t- Tibet they'll still have days when they can't get settled. And 
there's just something in their mind, you know what I mean? And I think that that is part of it. That's part of the, you know, getting to know yourself and getting to know your brain and how it works and like, and it's almost, it's like exercise. That's what I think, that's the mm. best way I think of describing it. Because I've, I've, I've had people that have told me they've tried meditating, they just couldn't, like they couldn't settle their mind or, you know, they say things like that. And it's like, well, you know, what's it like when you take up an exercise, if you take up jogging? On day, like day two, you don't go for a 20K run, do you? Or, and even, I know people that run, have run, have run marathons and they'll go mm. for a 5k jog and be like oh, i just couldn't get into it today do you know what i mean like yeah it's it is the fact is your your mood your body how you slept there's so many factors to how you're gonna be that day with anything you do and i think meditation is really good for making you maybe realize where you're at that day like sort of i've done i've been doing this meditation retreat thing this week with the london buddhist center they're doing it online and um and i used to go down to london buddhist center on their afternoon um, meditation sessions now and again if i was in the area they do just a free meditation session at one o'clock every day and um it's wicked actually it's donation only so like it's yeah it's really oh, yeah. beneficial for anyone in that area and like you don't have to know what you're doing they they split basically normally there's about 30 or 40 people show up and they split you into beginners or intermediate and the beginners will actually be give, given a full hour long guided meditation and the intermediates who know what they're doing a bit will just be started and they'll, they'll be bookended essentially and they just do their mm. own thing but they're doing a week-long thing at a minute and i've been doing it every morning and a proper like normal because i don't I've, I've not really been in the practice for ages now of doing like a set right it's 8 a.m i'm doing 45 minutes to an hour or whatever i'll just do it if and when i get the chance or when i feel like it i'll do loads of, some days i'll do it i'll sit on a train and do half an hour when i'm on route somewhere or I just I just fit it in around my day but this week I've been doing it at eight every morning and it's great I mean every day has been different yesterday was definitely the worst oh no not yesterday day before Tuesday I had a real just frustrating hour I just couldn't get into it I was all over the shop and what that taught me was like it made me realize that by nine o'clock I was like all right I don't think I slept very well I think I'm a bit sort of um fidgety so you know today i need to probably just be wary of that and do a few things just to sort of keep my mood up whatever and actually yeah. just doing that meditation made me realize that if i hadn't done it i probably would have had that sense in me all day without knowing and just felt a bit yeah, whereas actually yeah. i do meditation really it will highlight how you're feeling that day and it, at least like you got the heads up then to work with it I find that it's quite hard to convince people to get into it, to be honest. Like, I, like yeah. I've tried to get a few of my friends to meditate. Some of them are like, no, nah, I wouldn't, wouldn't bother doing that. Doing that nonsense. It's like, all right, <laughs> fucking Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> off, you, <laughs> off you pop. Um, and other people, like, I've tried it, but I just couldn't get into it. But they, it turns out they were trying to do, like, a 20-minute one on their first time. I was like, well, don't do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes I either I've, I don't feel in the mood, and I'll even in, like, four minutes, three, four minutes, you, you can sometimes get get an amazing buzz from it so yeah yeah i think it is definitely a cultural thing as well like you know i wouldn't there's i've got one mate out of all my old mates from school and that that does it and like he i mean he does it properly he's, he's spent time in like zen monasteries and stuff but apart from him and me that everyone else you know and everyone had similar upbringings you know they've had like working class probably second generation immigrant upbringings where you know they're just they 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 come from backgrounds and families that probably weren't that you know conducive to getting into meditation. You know mm. what I mean? That's the nature of it. So I think, and I had it. I I reckon, you know, it took me a bit of effort to get over my own voice of saying like, "Fucking, who do you think you are, mate?" You know yeah. what I mean? Because you can't help it. Because you yeah, you, you think meditation, and you think, you know, we've got quite a weird view of we think of it as like a middle class endeavor. Whereas, you know, it's not middle class, is it? It's, you know, it wasn't, even though I do Buddhist meditation, that wasn't invented by middle class white people, was it? You know what I mean? It's mm. thousands of years old. And like, you know, it's, it's that thing of, I think once you, you've got to try and get out, get your own judgment of it out of the way. And, and also there's so many different types. Find one that works for you. I've got like, I've got a mate called John Hastings. He's a Canadian comedian. And John is one of the most like, what's the word like adhd type people i know 
you know, he's, he's, and I don't, I mean, I don't know if that's a genuine sort of, you know, if he's undiagnosed or something, but he constantly needs distraction. Like he'll have, I live with him in Edinburgh at the fringe every year and he, he, he's stressful to watch go about his day. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, he'll have like he'll be walking around the flat with his laptop in his hand, like with a film on. He'll have a podcast playing out of his phone, and he'll be making a smoothie. And there's so much noise, and somehow he just needs that to function. So he was asking about meditation, and I was like, I know for a fact he could not sit still and do half an hour of meditation, or even ten minutes of meditation quietly, because I don't think his brain genuinely could deal with it. Uh, but I recommended to him this Wim Hof meditation method which is a breathing thing that you do that is actually really active and like you basically almost hyperventilate yourself into a meditative state and the reason i, as I said to him you need something like this because it feels like you're doing something it doesn't it's the opposite of what some people think meditation is which is sitting really still and trying to mm. calm your mind so yeah i think you know i think a lot of people don't realize that it's not meditation isn't sitting on a mountaintop with your legs crossed going oh yeah yoga pants and dreadlock yeah there's mm. shit loads of style there's types of it that are pretty hardcore you know like that mm. Wim Hof one makes you feel like you've just fucking come up on acid or something and if you do it right it's really like you do this heavy breathing in and out and like it properly gets you into this hyperventilated state and then you just stop and then your body just like, like you feel like you're floating so like that's, I'd say I'd recommend that to people that think meditation's a bit, I can what, just sit there still, mate, and not think nothing. <laughs> yeah. Brother, eat a fucking sausage sandwich, mate. We remember yeah. <laughs> but I, I get that, you know what I mean? I sort of, it happens with loads of stuff, innit? Like, when, yeah. I went ve- I, when I went vegan, loads of my mates had that response of like, what, you can't eat sausages, can't even have a steak. And again, it, and, and again, they thought it was a middle-class venture, and it was like, it's not, I'm doing it, from a slightly spiritual perspective of like, there's been vegans for thousands of years in India, you know what I mean? Like, mm. I think white people can always think when somebody does something slightly different, it's oh, what, somebody's going up in the world, isn't they? And it's like, it's, it's, you know, this, we get a bit of a, you know, a, a, a egotistical view that we started everything. Yeah, definitely. And we were inadvertently vegan when we were back in early evolution, to be honest, because we didn't really have much of a choice. Well, yeah, well, the, yeah, our meat intake was based on if we could catch a fucking yeah. saber-toothed tiger once a month <laughs> or something, you know? <laughs> people act like that. People go like, no, mate, I eat meat because we're top of the food chain. Or they act like <laughs> they act like them walking to Asda is fucking going out hunting or something. It's like, <laughs> couldn't be fair. Like, you're not a Neanderthal, mate. You're not a caveman. You've just fucking, you've just ordered your shit on a cardo, mate. Don't try and tell me that you're some hunter-gatherer. <laughs> Do you find that your diet helps your mental health? Because I find this a lot and I didn't, I, I wish I respected this earlier, but when I eat healthily, like it makes a massive difference to my headspace. <laughs> and I wish I, I wish I knew that years ago. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and also, but sometimes, even sometimes though, you know that and you still, but there's still short term benefits to just eating shit, isn't it? Like, mm, it's yeah, yeah. I know, I know for a fact when I'm eating well at a minute, uh, the last two weeks, and again, this sounds like I'm king of the hippie, like, you know, fads, but um, I've been doing that intermittent fasting thing where I only eat between certain hours. So I'm, I'm only eating between midday and 8 p.m. And everything, I don't have anything. Other, after 8 p.m., I don't have anything other than water. Or I might have like a herbal tea. And before 12 in the morning, nothing but water. And, uh, and, and I do that whenever I get into bad habits. If I'm going through habits of like late night, a bit of toast mm. before bed sort of stuff and, you know, just eating a bit too much, I push myself out of it and do that intermittent fasting because it's quite an extreme, like I've got to put boundaries on everything to say, right, just do this for a bit to get out of your bad habits. And I've, I've been doing it for two weeks. I feel wicked. Like I'm sleeping better. I'm waking up with more energy. You know, and it's just that thing of, yeah, when you obviously if you're eating like sugar late at night and stuff and naturally your sleep ain't going to be as good and, and that will just have a knock-on effect during your day. You'll feel a bit more lethargic and you'll need a certain sugary to give you a short-term energy boost. And you, just, you actually looked at what you put in your body and then, you know, it's like with booze, isn't it? You know, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I've, I'm, I've gone through phases of being, I'd say, a 
pretty almost a high functioning alcoholic you know what i mean where i've just drank all the time just you know and yeah i don't know if i'm not in the mornings but i would say i've gone through phases where i've drunk every evening for months and you know and then suddenly you're wondering why you're feeling sad during the day and mm. you're sort of you might be slightly more anxious than normal and it's like why do you think mate you've literally got alcohol in your blood yeah. system every morning you know you've got that sort of shivery booze blues thing you know i think a lot of people don't sometimes equate the two you know they might say oh you know i suffer from anxiety and then they talk about needing medication it's like you probably just need to stop taking mdma every week <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> probably just look at your lifestyle that, that, that should be the first port of call with it when you're somebody who's going through a, a period of mental health problems mm. i've i was guilty of this you know i've i've been, I've been medicated in the past i've done therapy and everything uh, but i think you know, we're very quick to uh, look for a medicinal fix rather than, I think the first thing you should look at is your lifestyle, mm-hmm. you know, your circumstances. Like, you know, if you're, if you're feeling depressed at the minute and you're like, I think I've got depression, I need to go on tablets. You know, if you look at your lifestyle and suddenly realise you're in a relationship that you hate and, uh, you know, and you're, you're in a job you don't enjoy, you know, if you looked at those things and obviously you're going to be depressed, you're not happy. <laughs> That's what depression mm. is. Depression yeah, is a yeah. lack of fulfillment in your life. Yeah. But I think we're very quick to go, well, what I'll do is rather than address those, um, I'll just take some tablets and then just let them continue. <laughs> so mm. you're just you're numbing yourself to the reality that you're not happy. And I, I did that for years. And it wasn't until I actually sorted my shit out that was causing the depression that I suddenly, when I came off antidepressants, I was like, oh, right. Now they've gone, I feel much better about my life. And the fact that I was being a bit more active and eating a bit better and I'd cut my drinking down, I'd stop taking drugs all the time. And mm-hmm. I suddenly had this moment of realisation that oh, I, still, I think I've actually ironed out a lot of the, the creases that are causing yeah. my depression. And I think, you know, it's very easy to say I'm a depressive and that's a lot. I suffer from anxiety and that's it. Then you just got, that sounds like you've got a disease that is terminal essentially Whereas if you say I've got I'm I'm going through a period of depression and anxiety, but if I sort out a bunch of things, I think I might it might go away. Then that's much more it's much more hopeful way of looking at it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. When I came off I came off antidepressants not too long ago, and I was very I was nervous about it because I thought, oh, when you take these pills away, like everything's just going to collapse in again. But when I was on them, I I, I didn't just take them. I used that time whilst my head was in a good enough space to address things that could have been causing me issues elsewhere. So I'm, I'm so glad I did that because I just came off them with ease. I thought it would yeah, be yeah. Like side effects and I'd get really anxious. Not at all. I was really surprised. Well, that's what, they meant. That's what they're there for. I think a lot of people mm. don't, don't realise that. And I think a lot of people aren't given that advice. And that's not, to, not, not sort of taking or not having a go at medical professionals, but no doctor ever told me that. When I, when I was on antidepressants... I, a doctor never said to me, you, you need to sort out the shit that's making you depressed. Not a single doctor. I know that not in those terms would they say it, but mm. you know, I had to, I had to work that out and I did it. And then also I had to, I had to really fight to get, obviously, you know, I got a therapy through the NHS, which I know is obviously the funding is an issue, but I had to ask for therapy when I went, when I first went in, I was, you know, I was, pretty much suicidal when I first went into a finally went to a doctor to discuss um, maybe being put on medication and you know and I know that the doctors have got limited time with every patient as well so I'm very understanding of that but that doctor should have put should have should at least give me the option of therapy do you know what I mean I think that I, I they I think they first were like this guy's in a lot of trouble let's get him on some pretty heavy dosage antidepressants and that was that's absolutely what they should have done but i also think that therapy should have been mooted at some point it wasn't i i it took probably six months for me to say all right these have leveled me out i'm starting to sort out a few things now that i think are good for my future but i then said i think i need to actually look at some of the causes for this that might be a bit more historic Mm -hmm. you know and try and maybe talk to a professional about that and then they finally 
you know, put, put me in a system to see if I could get some therapy. And even then, it took a couple of therapists to, uh, to, for me to find the right one. Yeah. So, you know, that, but that was another one that I don't think enough people have the access to. Because I'd say without, yeah, without doing therapy, I don't think I would have probably got to this point as quick as I have, you know, being pretty chilled and, you know, not, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think I got found out a lot of stuff in therapy that I'd carried along with me from childhood mm-hmm. that, you know, it was horrible, really. You know, having sort of a resentment towards your own parents for how they were, it's a horrible thing to really carry with you, isn't it? But then therapy sort of gave me a bit more of an awareness that my parents had also got their own issues, so it's not their fault. They were just going through their own stuff, weren't they? Yeah. So actually, I think a lot of people just need, should go into therapy that probably don't get offered that option. So is that how you got to got to that point then when your mental health was maybe at its at its worst? It was just like a build up of past experiences and stuff like that? I think so. I think it was a mix of everything. I think the actual main cause was lifestyle. You know, I was in me and my ex wife were, you know, we probably we worked very hard to maintain a relationship that probably was making us both pretty ill mm. for and I, you know, we really you know, a lot of people I think are very quick to give up on a relationship. You know, it feels a bit shit. I'm out of here. We did the opposite. I think we tried everything. We did ther- couples therapy, everything. Like we really tried everything we could, but actually, we couldn't probably see for a good few years that what we should have done earlier was not be together. We were the, we were the cause of each other's issues. Mm. So there was that, and every there was yeah, just other lifestyle things and family things, and you know, I yeah, I just had a lot. That like this, the lifestyle things at the time were, we should have ended that relationship, and I would have, I should have gone off and just had some time alone, and got, you know, had to think about myself for a bit, uh, and not felt guilty all the time. I was always feeling guilty about being in a relationship I didn't want to mm. be in, and how I was acting because of that. So once that was out of the way, then it was like, right, I've got the main sort of issue of the moment out of the way what what else is going on that's caused a lot of those my issues and I think yeah it was quite quickly I worked out it was childhood stuff you know my parents are pretty you know they've got they my mum's had always had issues like serious mental health issues for my whole childhood and her whole family does she comes from a really rough tough childhood herself so I'd never I never really gave that much thought I just I always thought the way she acted when I was young was just almost, I always, I just thought she was being selfish. I was actually, wasn't a good mum. And actually I think it took me going through some bad life shit and then getting therapy to realize that I had acted, man, she was going through some tough things when I was mm. young. So I just suddenly had a bit more uh, like compassion to her suddenly released a lot of the, the resentment. And my dad was just old and a bit, you know, he's, my dad is, he was 43 when I was born and he's just not, that sort of paternal type. Yeah, you know I mean, when I was growing up, my dad was not the type to play with me or any of that stuff. It was almost like having this old bloke in the corner who just, you know, hardly spoke to him really because he just didn't mm. know how to. He he didn't know how to communicate with kids. He's not that type of person who could do that kiddie fun chat. So I think, but you know, I just never really got to know him. And I think also in the last five ten years, as he's become really old. Uh, he, I've suddenly he's really relaxed into himself and he's now a much warmer nicer person and you know I think that had to happen before me to go oh yeah he just wasn't that wasn't his type he just didn't have the personality type to be a fun dad you'd go for a kick of that down the park with mm. so it's just that sort of stuff you know you carry all that thing that stuff with you and you just get to an age sometimes you're like oh right it's, they were just grown-ups who had loads of shit going on yeah we can be very quick to sort of blame or say that yeah or to blame our circumstances without really observing why those circumstances are how they are yeah it's also it's almost impossible to see your parents as people rather than just your parents mm. isn't it you forget that it's so that's such a moment i think that people have you know in and i don't know it's i reckon i was in my 30s before i realized that that you know i, I stopped judging my parents as my parents and thought about them as individuals mm. who had loads of baggage and had tough things going on and you know financial problems when we were growing up and like I suddenly was like shit man they actually the fact that I turned out all right and functioning they done all they actually probably did the best with what they 
were going through at the time. Mm. So yeah, yeah, I think that that and therapy taught me that. But I probably that would have taken a long time to probably work out without a good therapist. Yeah, I think it does for a lot of people. To be fair, sort of as we uh, sort of come towards the end of this episode, I'd like to do a few, not quick fire, but slightly faster paced questions regards to your mental health. Um, what are the main things that cause you stress and anxiety? Um, well, nowadays, not much actually. Since I've you know got entered into a much more relaxed lifestyle and. I don't drink as much and yeah, you know, I mean I drink very rarely nowadays and I meditate and I'm I'm quite philosophical about everything. I find now actual big life stuff doesn't really stress me out, you know. Even when like with the lockdown, my finances, you know, I'm sort of essentially not gonna be earning money for months. I've got a little bit that will tide me over, but you know, it's I'm at the poorest I've been probably for a decade and I don't know why, but it's not stressing me out. And I yeah, think it's because amazing, I've just though. But I think it is that thing of just being like I've got I've found a way of being very philosophical about everything and realizing that normally things turn out all right. So the things I get stressed about now are just the most. It's it's, it's only ever little tedious, you know, daily, you know, things you'll mess up. Yesterday I tried to make a garlic dip and it went wrong. That's the thing that annoyed me yesterday. So <laughs> I'll find myself now. I'll get stressed in a moment about a very small annoying admin thing your laptop your something crashes but weirdly when it comes to big things i feel like oh i'm actually now i've found a, a, a relative level of calmness so i feel ready to cope with most things mm-hmm. that is amazing mate that is great uh what's your biggest fear in life um fear i suppose i mean at the minute it's a genuine life thing is that you know my wife is due to give birth next month mm. and i'm very she's had a really lovely easy pregnancy it's been nice it's been really amazing to watch her enjoy her pregnancy and not she's not had that sort of you know you hear some people like get really stressed with it and it's really difficult physically and you know that's you know it must be so hard but she's really breezed through it so I suppose my my only fear at the minute is just the, the baby being born, everything being fine, healthy, you know, an easy birth, you know, so not too medical, you know, not too much intervention. So I just, I think that's my, at the minute, that's my main one that is every now and again, I'll think, right, just, I just hope it just goes really smoothly and there's no complications. Yeah. Of course, yeah. And uh, last question, I always like to try and end on some positive reflection. Um, what about yourself are you most proud of? Um, I mean, it probably differs day to day. I'd say from what we've talked about, I think it is genuinely the fact that I've, I, I would not have assumed a decade ago that I would be a, a, a who I am today, like happy and calm and settled and you know not you know not somebody who is prone to just a, a blowout of you know volcanic proportions that used to be my way of doing things I basically I was always relatively calm on the surface I think people would look at me and be like oh he seems like a chilled guy but what would happen was inside everything was building and building and then I'd just have a blowout and I'd go and do something stupid mm-hmm. and then it'd be you know then I'd have guilt and that would be a horrible come down off that and then it would be like right i've reset and now let's do that again and that was almost like my life up and down constantly and i feel like the fact that i sort of have sorted out what i needed to for me to function well and calmly and comfortably yeah i think yeah i'm, I'm pretty proud that because you know, i did some things that probably had benefits and something that didn't i really went off and i went traveling and you know, I did all the wanky things, but I also did the medical things as well. And, you know, I went off and drank bloody ayahuasca tea with a shaman. And I did all sorts of mad shit to try and try and find out what was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they all had benefits. But what I essentially had to do was just let a bunch of stuff go and yeah. learn some sort of way of philosophically looking at the world as not a place to stress me out. Mm-hmm. Amazing, mate. Thank you so much for joining me on uh, the Football and Feelings podcast. No it's, it's great to hear the place that you're in now compared to where you were before. It, it really is. It's encouraging and I'm sure it will help yeah. people listening as well. I hope so. That's, if I could say one bit of advice, it's genuinely that it is, it is, it's a bit of hard work, but actually 
it's way more doable than you think of it mm. being at the time when you're at your lowest. It feels like that, you know, it would be impossible to not be in that place. And actually, you just got to commit to it and, you know, really, you know, sort, find out what in your life is causing the pain. And if you get rid of that, you'll be surprised how quick you can start getting on an even kill. And it is always worth it. Thank yeah. you very much, Carl. I'll post your cheers, social media man. links in, uh, in the description as well so oh, people cheers, can find mate. you. Thank cool. you very much for listening to the Football and Feelings podcast. Cheers. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.